Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 13. The book of Acts, chapter 13. We're going to stand and read verses 1 through 3 in one moment. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 1. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Please be seated. Two neglective distinctives. There are more. I'll concentrate on two this morning. When I say neglective distinctive, distinctives of Christians, things that are there to set us apart from those who are not Christians. And uh, unfortunately, being led by the Spirit, I think, is something that a lot of us may be guilty of neglecting. Another distinctive is waiting for God. Uh, To wait for God is to do without, that you're waiting for Him to supply what you You feel you lack. And so to be led by the Holy Spirit is a distinctive of Christianity. Paul said to the Romans that as many as are the children of God, these are led by the Spirit of God. Well, if you're going to be led by the Spirit, you're going to have to learn to wait. And if you're going to learn to wait, you're going to have to learn to do without, which is very difficult to the flesh. There are things, those, uh, a desideratum, you know, I just must have it. There was this grenade launcher I wanted, and I just had to have it. (laughs) I don't know why you're laughing. (laughs) Another thing about being led and doing without and waiting for the Holy Spirit is that you're going to irritate others who don't want you to wait, who do not want to do without, and who are, have made up their mind the leading has already happened and you need to act. So be on guard about those things if you're the one being led or if someone else is being led. You know, give them space to follow the Lord. So we look now at verse 1 of Acts 13. This is a very exciting three passages, I think. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, this is Antioch, Syria, to the north, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. There's another Antioch that factors into the Bible story, Antioch, Pisidia, which is uh, to the west and north of this Antioch in, in modern, both of them in modern-day Turkey. Uh, so we don't want to, be, to confuse the two. At this Antioch, Syria, that's where we were first called Christians. This church was being established by some solid believers. 
they it was a healthy church and soon soon it will be totally independent of Jerusalem right now Jerusalem is still you know uh, the, the, the headquarters you could say but as Paul establishes himself as an apostle uh, Antioch will be on her own. And we know this because James will send up men from Jerusalem. Paul said they came up here to spy out our liberty. And Paul put them all in their place. So we'll get that when we get to the letter of, uh, to the Galatians. But Gentiles were coming into this church without having to become Jewish first. They were to just believe in the Christ as, as their Savior. And it was happening there. It says here in verse 1, there were certain prophets and teachers. Now, remember, there was no New Testament Bible yet. It was developing. And uh, the, the early church, you know, they had doctrine. They had a systematic theology. But it was really not uh, organized as we have it, available as, as we have it today. The teachings of Christ were largely oral and, of course, I, I'm, I would believe without any hesitation that there were, were perhaps unorganized notes here and there. Uh, people will just write things down. They want to remember. And, and even in those days, they could do that and did do that uh, until, uh, you know, the letters started coming out, um, Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel. Then it began. In fact, the gospels were put together to put an end to the misinformation that was coming out to address those things and tell the Christians from by those who were there what was going on. This uh, Apostle Paul, uh, who he is, of course, one of the great teachers of the New Testament, the apostles, they were all teachers. They were all prophets. Uh, they were all leaders in the church. And they were the primary overseers of the beginning of Christianity. If an apostle objected, that objection stood. And we have no record of them being at odds with each other. What we read in Acts chapter 20 is the apostle Paul speaking to the pastors from the church at Ephesus. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You know how much theology is just in that verse? Just the purchase of the church with his own blood. This is the assembly. It's the local church and, yes, the universal church. But the local church, that is it. Uh, that is a powerful entity on earth, and Satan hates its guts. So make no mistake, there are those out there in Christendom that say, well, that, you know, you don't really need the church. They're nuts. Christ uh, purchased the assembly of believers in his name to commune together in his name to his glory. He purchased it with his own blood. He bought us from the slave block. We were, we were ransomed by his blood as we were just singing. He continues, Paul does, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And there's the apostle teaching and encouraging and prophesying in the foretelling sense. Because to prophesy is not just to predict. 
a large part of New Testament prophecy is forth-telling, not foretelling. Uh, speaking forth the word of God, its truths and its applications. We're supposed to be doing this. When someone tells you something about the Bible that's not true in the workplace or the school, the neighborhood, wherever you find yourself, we stand up and say, that's not true, it's not biblical. And here's why. That is the office of a prophetic office, also a prophetic office. When you consider the letter to the Hebrews, Paul was teaching the Jews to no longer be Jewish in their religion. And the ethnicity stands, of course. And he, he taught them in that letter, and I, I believe Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. I've got to add that or else somebody will come up and say, well, we don't know Paul wrote the <laughs> You don't know. I know. Anyway, uh, Paul taught the Jews. And not only did he teach them Christianity, he taught them the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which a lot of people have a hard time figuring out. Unfortunately... There are Christians who ignorantly, I think, and I don't mean that in a harsh way, but it's still ignorance in, in this sense, they allow the Old Testament to overrule the New Testament. They won't come out and say that, but they do it with their life. And they, they treat others that way. And it's, it is a huge mistake. We are ministers of the New Covenant, we are told, in the New Covenant. All the prophets were teachers, but not all the teachers were prophets at this time in the church. These distinctions, they would, they would merge into something else, good. Again, why? Well, they had no New Testament Bible. That's why God himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. Well, we don't have apostles of Jesus Christ anymore. We have apostles of the church, but not of Christ. Only 13 men in the Bible have the distinction of being handpicked by Jesus personally to the apostolic office. One forfeited that office, Judas Iscariot. When John gives us the revelation of Jesus Christ, he says, I saw the foundation of New Jerusalem and the names of the 12 apostles were on there. He doesn't name them because he would have to leave Matthias out, I would think. But it's a big deal is my point. And uh, the, the apostles were all prophets, but then under them there was another layer of leadership in the church. And these prophets, such as Agabus, who did foretell, told the future, but that was, again, such a small part. Uh, how much of the future can a person tell? There's so much more to do. It needs to be said. Instructions given. Authority exercised. And I'll, hopefully we'll open this up a little bit more. But these prophets were essentially trustworthy preachers and teachers and leaders in the church. And I, I uh, uh, well, um, they were foremost men of Scripture. I'm sorry, the stumbling there was, where do I go next? There's just so much, you know, because we, we have these understandings of things that aren't always accurate. When we, when we, when in the Old Testament, they said, is not Saul amongst the prophets? Well, that didn't mean he was out there telling the future. It meant he was singing psalms and worshiping the Lord with, the school, and with those who were from the school of the prophets. These were men of ministry. And so we have to uh, pay attention to these teachings because it is the, this collective knowledge that helps us understand what was going on and what to do with what was going on then, now in our own lives. 
some of those classified as prophets were itinerants. In other words, they would travel from church to church, and they would encourage the church, and they would teach. Um, This led to the Gnostic heretics infiltrating the church because they joined this, this, you know, going on the circuit and having something to say, and they were poisoning the conversations, uh, the, the congregations with the conversations. And uh, this is why we have John's first letter, for example. He's dealing with these, these, uh, these uh, heretics. Uh, we have Paul dealing with them in his Colossian letter and other places in the New Testament uh, it is addressed. The teachers, to make a distinction a little bit here at this point in the history of the church, the teachers, or the prophets often moved around. The teachers were stationary in the church. Again, all of this will develop into the office of the pastors. Why I read that verse to you from Acts. I'll take another one later from Peter. Uh, and, and, but I'm going to lead up to one in a moment from Christ himself. The prophets were teachers, and the teachers, of course, were teachers. This comes from Christ directly, that the leaders of the church are to teach the word of God and tend the sheep by ministry of the word. John's Gospel, chapter 21, this is Jesus speaking directly to Peter. And Peter had, you we know, had, had denied the Lord, and the Lord rebuilt him because Peter confessed, with a, with, you know, went out and wept bitterly. He said to him, Jesus said to Peter, Feed my lambs. Well, it's, it is, of course, metaphor. You're not really lambs. Uh, you're people. And to, to feed the people... You, it is the word of God, and that is not all. Discipleship, the lifestyle. You know, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is discipleship. And to presume, it is presumptuous to presume that somehow you just automatically understand Christianity when you give your life to Christ. is rather arrogant. Uh, and and it is practiced. Uh, we'll come to some of that when we get to dealing with Dathan, in the Old Testament, who challenged the authority of Moses and Aaron. He continues in John's Gospel. He said to him, it's the second time, tend my sheep. What makes a pastor a pastor is he's around the sheep. Two things I've learned about the sheep, which I am also one. One, you have some sheep that are a pain in the neck, and you have other sheep that are a blessing in the heart. And that's just the facts. And you cannot give, uh, you know, different attention to them. Uh, they're still the sheep. Uh, in fact, in, in pastoring, well, let me qu- finish the quote from John. Then I'll give you a proverb about this very uh, element of public ministry. Uh, as I mentioned, Jesus said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. And so you have lambs, you have sheep, uh, you, you, you have them in different stages and different levels, and you, the pastors are to minister to them all. Well, these men that we're talking about here in Antioch, they were pastors of the church in Antioch, these five men. And they were about to send two of them out because of their burden for the lost souls in the world, primarily the Gentiles, but not only the Gentiles. In Proverbs... We read in Proverbs 14, where no oxen are, the troth is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. 
That Proverbs means. That proverb means that if you are in ministry from time to time, you are going to step in it. And without the people, there's nothing to step in. But with those people, in spite of the things that you have to deal with, there is much increase. There is fruit. There is damage done to hell's agenda. And the church is at the center of that. What's the church doing in Afghanistan? Trying to survive if they're at all. And we understand the importance of the church because we just look at places where she does not exist or a counterfeit church exists. In the days of the kings, we read constantly. But the high places, they couldn't take away the high places. What were they? They were hybrids. There were these centers of worship that were forbidden. And at those high places, they mingled in the teachings of Moses with something else that Moses forbade. The fact that they showed up there to worship and not in Jerusalem. The indication of that. You say, well, where does that exist today? The Roman Catholic Church is notorious for this. They just take the name of Christ. They mix all other stuff up in it, too. And somehow we're supposed to be quiet about that? Well, you be quiet about that. I'm not going to be quiet. You know, well, no one's got a gun to your head. And I don't have a gun to their head. So there. I'm just being childish to break the tension a little bit. <laughs> I hope I'm not childish all the time. But anyway... Uh, th- these are just uh, the way I see it as a Christian. God gives teachers because no one automatically knows. And discipleship is a part of teaching because not you have to see it in action to, 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 develop, to develop your theology. You can learn something on paper, but really not learn how it, how it functions. Uh, I, I learned loving the sheep from watching my pastor in New York, Mike Venizia. He just had such a heart for the people. And, and they, you know, they talk about pains in the neck. In a big city like that, you're going to have a lot of them. And uh, just uh, learning from observing. Watch out for those who like to learn but do not like to be taught. That may be pride. Now, there may be exceptions also. You may say, well, there's nobody around to teach. The essence of prophecy, the essence, when we talk about there were prophets and teachers in this church, the essence of prophecy is information from God. Uh, when, when you quote scripture, that information comes from God. But does, does the life match the preaching? Because the devil can preach scripture. We know that, of course, Jesus being in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, tells the church, looky, looky. You can suffer this too and be ready for it. Uh, In the New Testament, as I mentioned, prophecy, not so much foretelling, but speaking forth the truth of Christ through preaching, through scripture, through song, through encouragement. Uh, The prophets giving application to the life in the church. The chief teachers, if you want to distinguish the two, the teachers would give uh, further meaning because as the Gentiles were coming into the church, they didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't know anything about Isaiah or Haggai the prophet. Who was Nehemiah and Ezra to them? Well, how are they going to learn? You give them, what, five or six scrolls and say, go learn this? Well, the teachers would teach them these things. And the prophets would be overseeing it, part of the teaching staff. And, and this is how the church began to get her sea legs in the world. And when we get to the epistles, we're going to see it in action. We're going to see uh, Paul having to uh, straighten out bent things repeatedly 
in the churches. Uh, again, the, the New Testament is, is critical to Christianity. Uh, warnings should be more pronounced in Christianity to those who attack pastoral authority. If you attend a church and you don't like it, then don't go back. But to try to stay there and create a problem, you are the problem in every case. It's just not, not, your, not a person's place to do such a thing. We would call it rude in other circles of society. Uh, Dathan, as I mentioned, and there are Dathans today, uh, they have a problem with authority in the church. And they probably have it out also. Although, although, get this. Sorry, I forgot I was here. <laughs> There, there are those that, you know, they don't like pastoral authority, but they demand it in their homes. They demand that the, I'm the dad, I'm the father, and, but they, they want that authority, but they don't want to give it up. And as we have taught, Christ was a man of authority, my father has said, because he was a man under authority. That's one of the great lessons of the life of Jesus as, as he walked. Well, Aaron's rod that budded, that was a sermon, it was an uh, an object sermon, that object, that staff said to all Israel, this is my high priest and you better line up with him. And that's why we read in Numbers 16, here's Dathan, he didn't like this. He didn't like that Moses and his brother were the leaders. And he comes up in no, no, Numbers 16 and says, um, they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the ability of Yahweh? I would have liked to whisper it in Dathan's ear. You know Moses has killed a guy before? <laughs> you might not want to. You might want to rethink what you're saying. Anyway, uh, there he is. We're all Christians. What gives you the right? That's what he's saying to Moses. And of course, what happened? A sinkhole sucked them all down, and the advocates with them. God got rid of them in front of everybody, that there'd be no mistake. Dathan didn't, you know, go and die of a heart attack or something. He was swallowed by the ground. <laughs> it, Nehemiah, we're talking leadership, because that's what these men were, the distinctives of Christianity. And if you've got a problem with the leadership that God has anointed, you've got a problem. And uh, it's for me, too. I have to, to, to you know, the, the church is self-correcting. It's not a totalitarian rule. Uh, the people will stop coming if you start pulling. Well, well I, actually, the, the people will come more. You'll just, you'll just be a, 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 you won't be a church anymore. You'll be something otherwise. But anyway, not the same people. The righteous will vote with their feet and say, I am out of here. But those looking for something else, of course, seem to not have a problem. Nehemiah, one of the great leaders in the Bible. Nehemiah was dealing with those Jews that were saying, we are Jews, we worship Yahweh, and we want to be received as Jews. Yet, we're going to intermarry, which is contrary to the law of the Jews. And Nehemiah dealt with these guys, because he said, you know, you're going to spread through the congregation with this. And this is what he writes. So I contended with them, cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. Now, that didn't happen to me. The hair part. 
But my point is, you see this, when, the, when this kind of stuff shows up in Scripture, it causes the reader to pause and think about this. Why is this in the Scripture? Why is this acceptable or unacceptable? These are where the lessons are, and we should not be afraid of them. We should embrace them. And if you are one that has pastoral, a problem with pastoral authority, I suggest you learn how to throw your weight behind the pastors, support them, pray for them, and you will find other doors open up for you. And it is just what Satan doesn't want to hear. And just think, what is the antithesis of what I am saying? It is not good. So this is a collective interpretation from the overall teaching of the scriptures. And I, I did not get to where I am, wherever that may be, by ignoring my teachers or by defying them. These offices in the church that are in the New Testament, there are some distinctions made. Again, they have been sort of absorbed into various ministries. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles. Now, the apostles have all gone, the apostles of Jesus Christ. Second, prophets. Those were the uh, next layer of leadership. Third, teachers, which does not mean the apostles and pastors, uh, prophets were not teaching. They were teaching too. And we still practice this. There's one pulpit in this church. There's not a special needs pulpit. Um, except in the kids' ministry. They, they have to be, uh, we want to meet them. We want to, as Vernon McGee would say, put the cookies where the kids can reach them. And uh, that's why the kids' ministry is there. We have competent teachers who are ready for those kids. Uh, hopefully, they, they get, if they go back there thinking that, oh, I don't need to study these kids, what do they know? They're going to get their clock cleaned because those kids are taught by moms and dads when they come to church, they have a knowledge of the Scripture. Well, uh, when Paul makes this distinction, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that, miracles, gifts, healings, helps, administration, varieties of tongues. He throws in the other ones, kind of matter-of-factly. We still have uh, special groups of teachers to some degree, theologians. Uh, apologist. I'm not, I never liked that word. It, it, it carries to me the idea that I'm saying sorry for something that I'm not sorry for. That's not what it is, but it just sounds that way. For instance, God has given the church men like C.S. Lewis. He's given men like John Lennox. They can minister to people that uh, pastors really can't. A pastor can't give a pass to some people that maybe an evangelist can you can say something a little kooky to an evangelist, and he'll just kind of like, well, Christ is it. And, you know, what do you say to a pastor? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, I ain't letting you get away with that. That is heresy. So uh, there are differences. Dave Hunt was a prophet to the church. If you don't know who Dave Hunt is, now you do. Uh, he was a prolific writer with impeccable research. And when he made a charge against heresy creeping into church, he documented it. He put it in the, uh, you know, the bibliography, his sources, his endnotes, just meticulous. He said, you don't believe me? Here it is in their, own, in their own language. And these aren't the only ones. I'm just using these as a few. A.W. Tozer was a prophet to the church to tell Christians, you need to clean up your act. You can worship a holy God. You can't just go in there as all sloppy with your, with your faith. You, gotta, you put it together when you come before the throne of God. Well, 
God taught that to Moses, did he not? Take the sandals off your feet. The ground you stand on is holy. Don't just come sashay up here like that. All right, maybe you don't see it. Then, what about Mark, Luke, and James, and Jude? They were not apostles of Jesus Christ. Yet, their words are scripture. And so, space for God to do what he is doing. I will add, there's, to me, a great difference between somebody who wants to teach and not be with the sheep and somebody who teaches and is with the sheep. Uh, I'm just not a fan of somebody who just sets up in their, you know, living room with a camera in front of them and is not. Because you've got to take hits. You'll become self-righteous and judgmental if you're not with the people. If you're with the people and you love them and they stumble, you look for solutions, not for condemnation. If they don't repent, then, that's another, then you've got to be firm. But you get someone who gets tripped up in sin and they come meet with the pastors and the pastors you know, discover that this person is, is contrite. They, they repent. Well, we're going to look to restore that person. I point this out because over the years of ministry, we have had several cases like this, of course. And I remember one, one outstanding is the, the, the person stumbled in sin. And it was a, a sin that the whole community knew about. Because it made it in, I might have made it into one of the papers anyway. Well, that person did repent and uh, repented here within the confines of this, this ministry. And uh, we looked to rebuild them. But word got back to me about people saying, can you believe it? Can you believe he goes to that church? We mean that church. This is why I wanted that grenade launcher. <laughs> we, what, what, shoot our own wounded. Is that the alternative? If a person is going to work with Christ, we're going to work with them. Well, you can't get to that level of ministry unless you're in public ministry. Well, you can, you know, in some other circles. But really, uh, this is, you, you know, the dream job of a pastor. A.W. A. Tozier got it in the last years of his ministry. He died somewhere, I think he was like 62 years old, something like that. And uh, he, he, in the last seven years or so of his ministry... Someone, you know, invited him. You come up, I think it was Toronto. You come up to Toronto, and all you have to do is be in that pulpit Sunday and preach. You don't have to do the weddings, the funerals, the counselings, uh, the bar mitzvahs. Uh, we, we don't do the bar mitzvah. Uh, anyway, uh, and, and he, that's what he did. That's just a side note to the flexibility that belongs to the preaching of the word. And so, uh, these are some important things about the leadership in the church that was developing in the first church into what we have today. It was not just, boom, you got it. It, 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 it came into place. As, as there are other things in, in the assembly that is a, a development of the New Testament times. Now, Luke names the prophetic teaching staff... Barnabas is first. Uh, this is a man that was embraced and named by the apostles the son of encouragement. How do you get on the radar of men like Peter and John? And when you're singled out, a man full of the Holy Spirit, he is like the Job of the New Testament in that sense. You know, God saying, you know, have you considered my servant Job a righteous man? Not into evil. Eschews evil. That's Job. And uh, that was Barnabas. Uh, the kind of reputation, the testimony he developed there 
in, the, in Jerusalem and now in Antioch. Then there was Simeon who was called Niger. Well, Niger comes from the Latin word black. And uh, evidently he was a dark-skinned African. There are light-skinned Africans too. Likely first converted to Judaism and then to the Messiah of Judaism, which we know as Christianity. Some connect him with another, <coughs> pardon me, Simon from Africa, Mark chapter 15, the, the, the Simeon, Simon, that uh, helped bear the cross of Christ. But there's no direct evidence to confirm that. So you, gotta, you, know, you just cannot be dogmatic about that. Lucius, which is Luke, of Cyrene. Uh, Luke, also from Africa, uh, present-day Tripoli. Now, I know most, all the branches know from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. All right. Anyway, Tripoli, that's, uh, uh, that, that is uh, Cyrene there in North Africa. There is no mention of his skin color because it is irrelevant. And in fact, um, Niger, Simon, who's called Niger, is, took that as a compliment. You'd say that today, oh, brother, the, the race mongers, they'll come out the carpet. And we'll be waiting for them with that grenade launcher. <laughs> All right. You know, the Bible says about pastors, they're not to be given to violence. And I've struggled with that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, I have not. I mean, I don't have any blood on my hands or anything like that. But, but I have fantasized from time to time. <laughs> All right. Menaean, who has been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Well... Uh, Herod, this is Herod Antipas, the killer of John the Baptist. You mean this leader? In fact, some translator, translations record that uh, Greek word as a foster brother, where it says brought up, a foster brother. And it can go comrade or foster brother. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. He was in very close proximity to that monster Antipas, who is the single man in Scripture that Jesus felt his questions weren't worth answering. And what, man, what a the, the theology is in that to get to a place where Christ is just I'm not have no interest, no interest in dealing with you. How do you get to that place? Well, make sure you don't. He did. Uh, Menaean was an aristocrat. He came from the upper class, and here he is in the church ministering along everyone else. And all they say is, yeah, he was brought up with Herod. And move right on to the next guy, which is a wonderful way to do it. Uh, these men, uh, this man raised in a palace, became uh, one, one became a ruler in the world, and the other became a ruler within the church. Don't be afraid of these words. They're, they're not, they're not uh, tyrannical. When Paul talks to the uh, Hebrews in chapter 13, he says, those who rule over you concerning the spiritual matters of the assembly, because they weren't uptight as, as we may have become. Uh, but this, this man becoming useful to God, this Manan, a pillar in the church, a friend of God. Now, Herod, Antipas, he gladly heard the preaching of John the Baptist. He just wasn't moved into the presence of conversion, or the presence of Christ to conversion. Uh, 
He wasn't changed by the truths. They just tickled his ears. And when his illegitimate wife heard John's preaching, what he was saying, she was filled with scorn. She is the mastermind of John being beheaded. But Herod has blood on his hands. He is guilty. Jesus does not save us on contact, but on consent. You can, there were those that, that were looked in the face of Christ. Herod Antipas was one of them. Just because he had contact with Christ doesn't mean he's going to get saved. You have to consent to the message, to the authority, to the lordship. You have to say, Jesus, you are Lord, my Lord and my God. And this is the Bible story we are to take to lost souls who are going to hell in first class, many of them. Many people that are being, going to be judged by God and condemned are very comfortable in this life. But they will not be comfortable after this life. Luke chapter 23 tells a story of a, a similar story of two people in proximity to Christ and having a different response. And when they had come to the place called the skull, that's what Golgotha, Calvary is, the place of death. Death to my old life, so that I can have life in the new. There they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And we know the story. One of them repented, and a solution was received. Uh, he, he gained salvation. Today, Jesus promised him, you'll be with me. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the other one? He went to his own place. He went to where he wanted to go. His road did not lead to heaven. It went to hell. Uh, verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Well, compared with verse 1 where it says, And they ministered. This is actively serving. And the, and the, he, the Greek word is, is, connotes public service. And you're not just, you know, just staying away and doing his own thing. This is public ministry. And uh, it means to give attention, to give care to the people of God in some form. You can, there are many ways we can minister. Uh, intercessory prayer, praying on behalf of another person. That's part of ministry. Maybe not, uh, not limited to pastoral ministry. It is Christian ministry. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And remember, Paul is teaching them how to be New Testament believers because they were struggling with that. He says, And every priest <clears throat> stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And that word ministering there is the same in the Greek. And he is, he is saying to them, the priest of the Old Testament, active in ministry, in public ministry. But then he adds, that Old Testament system doesn't work. And, and that's what he's talking about there. But I wanted to draw attention to the use of that word, ministering. Then, now moving away from the word, but to the concept of serving, we have little, little cute Samuel with the little ephod. First Samuel 2, this is his father, Elkanah, went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to Yahweh before Eli the priest. What does that mean? He made himself available. 
as a little child, he was God's gopher. He would go for this and go for that. Eli would say, hey, go get more oil for the lamps. Hey, go sweep out the, the courtyard. Hey, go dust this. And he would go do it. Oh, I forgot the shears for, for, the, for the wicks and the, and the lamp stamp. Go get them. And that's how he started ministry, at the bottom. 1 Samuel 3. Now, the boy Samuel ministered. I, I first read from 1 Samuel 2, chapter uh, verse 11. Now I'm reading from 1 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel ministered, which means he continued, to Yahweh before Eli. And the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Here he is serving at a time when the word of God was, not, was, was dead to the people. But he's still faithful. He's still serving. When Christ comes, he goes to the synagogues, which were parallels to our churches, and it was a dead synagogue. They couldn't even recognize him. They had people in there with unclean spirits, and they seemed to be very comfortable with that. I know who you are, the Son of God, and uh, this is uh, where he was, so we shouldn't be too surprised by the setback that we, setbacks that we in, encounter in, in ministry. Well, waiting for God, uh, waiting for instructions, waiting to be led, uh, this is something that um, it belongs to our faith. Prayer includes waiting. Or otherwise, what are we doing? Demanding from God? you got like five minutes to get this done, God. Uh, when you pray, I would suggest, especially in corporate prayer, don't be so quick to talk. Ask yourselves, are you listening to God? Are you moved by God? Uh, you know, you can just come in and we can always pray for something. I mean, we can always just bring up something. But it is sweet when it's spirit-led, is it not? And I'm not trying to spook you out of, well, if I do get you to not talk, uh, pray when I'm with you, then I get to do all the praying. So that might be a good idea. Uh, no, it's not. It just I think the sobriety that we should uh, bring with us to church uh, Ecclesiastes 5, and to prayer. Uh, we, I will pray in the Spirit. Well, these five men in public church ministry, not isolated, off doing their own thing, not competitors to the ministry. There are those that are competitors. Uh, Diotrephes became that. And John, of course, scolded him in, in his epistle. And fasted, it says here. So we're talking about waiting for, for on God, but how does being fast... Okay, stop. <laughs> yeah, maybe you just didn't see that. Uh, anyway, they fasted. That means they abstained from something for some period of time. This is also a timestamp. This means that this event that we're considering was not just overnight. There is waiting involved, or else there'd be no time to fast. Uh, okay, I go, five minutes, I'm going to do it without coffee. Uh, that that wouldn't be fasting, uh, but they. What does fasting do? Well, I think one of the main things that it does is it makes us sensitive to the need that we have. I'm not going to be the, go so far to say that fasting uh, overcomes the flesh, and the reason why is because Christ gave a parable about a Pharisee who boasted about his fasting. And yet, yet he was, a, he was a, a tr you know, um, shallow. He was the bad guy in, in the parable. And fasting didn't help him. 
And so I have to look a little deeper. I'm not saying that's it's not part of fasting. It, it is. But I think one of the main reasons why we fast is to uh, make us more sensitive to the Spirit and less distracted. Now, he says, they fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, because he's not an it, he is a person, and he speaks. He is God the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're talking about God. And you should know, it was King David who gave us this, who coined the phrase, the Holy Spirit. The first one in the scripture to introduce that phrase to us, and it is perfect. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, this was a blessing, a benediction, of, or a doxology of the early church. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Now, the Father is referred to as God, but that does not mean the Son and the Spirit are not equal with the Father. It's just, it's just encapsulating. And here in Corinthians, that, that was a benediction given to, to the new believers. And in that, we have the Trinity. We have the Father, who is made of none, neither created nor begotten, self-existent, eternal, eternally, eternal past and forward. We have the Son. He is of the Father, not made nor created, but begotten, coming forth from the Father in what we call the virgin birth. He, too, is self-existent and eternal. He said in his prayer in John 17, And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What kind of glory is that? That's eternal glory. That's divine glory. Then the Holy Spirit is of the Father and the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. This is the Athanasian Creed. This is what the early church fathers, after the apostles, put together based on the teachings of the apostles in a, a concise statement, a statement of faith concerning the Trinity. And Athanasius, he dealt with those who were of the Arians, modern uh, ancient Jehovah Witness version. Uh, he dealt with them on the Trinity. And the members of the Trinity are not three separate persons. They are three distinct, coexisting persons. That is the Trinity. And to illustrate that, probably the best I can do is you consider a triangle. It is one triangle with three corners, and they all belong to the same thing. They are inseparable. You will not have a triangle if you, you separate them. Uh, we continue on. And they ministered to the Lord. Uh, the word, this word for minister, again has to do with full service of the word. Peter said we will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's not enough to know it, to preach it, but to actually conduct uh, life, to behave based on what we believe. And uh, this, uh, here's, this is a beautiful illustration of waiting on the Lord. Genesis 18 this is when Abraham has these three visitors. One, of course, is it's a, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, he, he, he serves them. We pick it up in Genesis 18, 8. And so he took butter and milk and a calf, which he had prepared, because ministry involves preparation, and set it before them. And he stood 
by them under the tree as they ate. See, that's ministry. He served them and he made himself available to serve more. Uh, that's a just beautiful uh, picture there. Now, separate to me Barnabas and Saul. Explicit instructions. Um, since this time, since this day, the Jews, even the Jews, are invited to believe. Not as Jews, but as sinners. Jewish people are invited to believe Jesus is their Messiah and our Messiah. Because we are sinners in need of a Savior, and he's him. And from, from, we'll get to this as we move through Acts. Paul making these points. For the work which I have called them to do. Well, uh, obviously there were needs. Clearly, it was not for everyone. The other three men would remain in Antioch, and these two men would be selected, separated, and sent out. And that's what we're reading I'm skimming over a lot of good points. You should have been there. But we have, because of time, finished this up. Verse verse 3. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So there, again, the delay, needing time to fast. That's made clear. And in that time, they would likely be looking for confirmation, which clearly they did receive. Wisdom is justified by her children, Jesus said. And as these men went out, we look at their ministry, we say, yep, that was the Lord. Look at the fruit that came, the lasting fruit that that came from that first missionary trip and the subsequent ones with Paul. Uh, They wanted to find out what what God had to say. God has no problem speaking to his people. He, He just never has that problem. Isn't this interesting? We know when God, we know the voice of God when he rebukes us. Do you know when he encourages you? Do you know when he directs you? Uh, people do this a lot. Sinners do this for those who aren't saved. They know that Satan exists. They know his work is around. They need no theology to learn about Satan. But when it comes to God, he doesn't get uh, equal treatment, does he? Uh, they just ignore him or make up stuff about him. But nobody has to make up anything about the devil. Because his, his craftsmanship is everywhere. You just got to make the connections and the consent to the result or the conclusion. Anyway, um, they laid hands on them. A meaningful tradition goes back in the scripture to Jacob. When Jacob laid his hands on Ephraim to bless the son of Joseph. And that is, which continues. And so we see this. Moses laid hands on Joshua to succeed him in, in the leadership of the, of the people, the, the, to pastor the flock of Israel, because the leaders were to be shepherds. And the word pastor means shepherd. The apostles laid hands on the deacons in, in chapter 6 of Acts. The filling of the Holy Spirit in chapter 8 and 9. When Paul laid hands on Paul the apostle. And then for ministry, Paul laid his hands on Timothy. So, i close with a, a verse before we get to the sentiment away. Two verses. Peter, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I've already submitted my hat size. 
Um, this, um, but here is the shepherd, that pastor of the flock. So by the time Peter writes these letters, the church has been around a long time. And this earlier uh, hierarchy has sort of been uh, melded into the pastorate. And that's what he and Paul were referring to and how we have it to this day. And it says here, they sent them away. They're going to do a lot of traveling, hard traveling, carts and donkeys and roads and walking. There's going to be boats and sinking boats. Paul said this to the Corinthians. Therefore, when I was planning this, do I do it lightly? Or the things I plan, do I plan according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, yes and no, no. In other words, he's saying, I don't plan coming to you lightly. I'm led by the Spirit of God. I don't say yes, yes, and no, no, and you're just confused. Was he saying yes or no? What is he saying? He's, he's telling them right out, I am led by the Spirit of God. This is a distinctive of Christianity. And these two men, Barnabas and Saul, who will become Paul, I think, verse 9, they looked for God for their beginning and not somewhere else for their ending. Having begun in the Spirit, they were perfected. In the spirit, not the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father, um, always uh, the thrill of your word because it is so alive and relevant in every age. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your mercy. Your son died to take our judgment upon himself that we could enter heaven one day. We love you and worship you. And for those who don't believe or those who have not made a confession of faith, Lord, may they act. May they not dilly-dally with their eternal state. If you are here this morning or watching or listening online, and you've never opened your heart to Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if you've never made the confession that you are a sinner unworthy of God's love and salvation, and yet loved and able to be saved nonetheless. If you would like to open your heart to Christ, you can do it right now, and He will be the one that saves your soul. So when, you, when it comes time for you to die, and you will die, all you have to do is die. The rest will be taken care of. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if it were not so, I would not have said it. If you'd like to open your heart right now to receive Christ, then make this prayer with me in sincerity, and God will receive you. Say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I have failed your will. And I ask you to forgive me. And I ask you to not only forgive me, but to embrace me as your, your own, to be from this day forward not only the Savior of my soul, but the Lord over my life. And I give it to you right here, right now. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, may they not be embarrassed about, about it. May they not be quiet about it. But may they let their confession be known to men, to your glory. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.